Welcome to Pantisocracy, and this is your host, Ms. Panty Bliss. <laughs> Thank you. Um, hello, and uh, welcome to our, my Pantisocracy parlor. And we have a room full of delightful guests, as always, in our cabaret of conversations, and a very attractive audience, even if I say so myself. <laughs> So with me tonight is a man who's currently everywhere on a stage or a cinema screen near you. He's touring the country with the play Class and is on the big screen with his fellow Tala man, Emmett Kirwin, in the film Dublin Old School. So uh, please welcome Stephen Jones. Victor, I'm an architect. I think our first architect here on Pantisocracy, who took off a few years ago to the refugee camp in Calais, and it radically changed her life and her work. Please meet Gronja Hassett. Um, then we've got a very chilled woman of song. Please welcome Susie Q. Who was inspired, or um, well, maybe more accurately moved, by child war refugees to write her song home, and Susie is going to do that for us a little later. Besides, Susie is a man who knows a little bit about being displaced, the artist Vukashin Nedjelovic, whose uh, homeland is Serbia, but he's now very much Irish and calls this place home. Vukashin has now turned documentarian, and he's been documenting his experience coming here as an asylum seeker and living in direct vision in Ballyhawness. And it's a wonderful project uh, called the Asylum um, Archives. Please welcome Vukashin. And finalement, we have the gorgeous and lyrical Shiva Brock. Uh, Shiva is a woman who grew up in the heartland of Irish trad music in County Clare, but whose musical odyssey has brought her from Shannos to jazz and soul. But before we get to meet all of these folk in the room, I get to hold the floor for a few minutes in what we are still calling the Panty Monologues, and I have been thinking about uh, rooms and who gets to come into them and who gets to sit at the table. I come from a family of six, three boys, three girls, and only nine years between the eldest and the youngest. Now, if you're going to have six kids, all under the age of nine, you need to be organized. Thankfully, Mammy Bliss is indeed organized. In fact, she's so organized that she even gave birth to us with the kind of military precision that would impress Kim Jong-un. <laughs> we arrived in order, boy-girl, boy-girl, boy-girl. Mammy Bliss thinks North Korean military parades are sloppy. <laughs> I was number five between my sisters, four and six. For organizational purposes, my mother would regularly divide us six into two groups of three, the evil ones and the good ones. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, the older ones and the younger ones. Now, much to the chagrin of myself and my sisters, four and six, we were known as the babes. We were always lumped in together where, as far as we could see, we always got the short end of the stick. We had an earlier bedtime, weren't allowed to stay up to watch MASH on the telly, and generally not allowed to do the things that the older three were allowed to do. Life, we three babes concluded, wasn't fair. An observation that was irrefutable and undeniable at mealtimes. Like I'm sure all families, we each had our own place where we always sat. And we three babes were sat together along one side on a kind of bench or banquette. It wasn't a bad seat, it was comfortable enough, but it set us apart from the older three and our parents, who had chairs. <laughs> One each, individual chairs of their own, chairs that could be moved independently, shifted or shunted, closer to or further back from the table for comfort. 
we three babes had no such independence on our shared bench that was attached to the wall. But at least we were still at the table. You know, some years at Christmas, we'd have visitors, and our family of eight would suddenly swell, swell to a number that was too big for our big family table. And so Mammy Bliss would instruct us to get out the small table. <laughs> the small table was a clever little table that, whose top folded neatly down in two leaves and till it almost took up no space at all, and which spent most of its time tucked away out of sight behind an armchair in the living room. Mostly, it was pulled out in the evenings and put up in the middle of the living room floor, its leaves unfolded so it could hold you know, a pot of tea, a jug of milk, sugar, maybe some biscuits or a few slices of brown bread and some cheese. Help yourself. Shut up, I'm trying to listen to the news. Not on a school night, you're not. Is there anything left in that pot? What's Anne Doyle done to her hair? <laughs> but at Christmas, at Christmas with visitors, it would be conscripted into service to bolster the seating capacity for the turkey dinner. But because of its round shape and small height, it wasn't pushed up against the big rectangular table, but would sit separately to one side with its own little tablecloth, and it looked adorable, so adorable that we babes were delighted to sit at it on little stools and look at us with our own little table. Look, and our own salt and pepper. <laughs> <laughs> But the excitement didn't last, because once the soup was out and the crackers were pulled and the chat and the banter and the passing of condiments, our table started to feel far away, isolated, you know, adrift from the big table where all the noise and the action was. And the longer the meal went on, well, the more cut off we felt. If we said something, we were ignored. Nobody heard us above the din. They didn't even see us you know, down here, two feet below their eye line, at our own little table. We couldn't really see them either. Well, we saw their legs and the dusty underside of the big table and a bit of dry chewing gum stuck to it that Mammy Bliss would have had a conniption about if she knew. <laughs> we had thought our own little table made us seem grown up, but it actually did the opposite. It excluded us, made us smaller and visible and ignored. If you're not at the table, you're not part of the conversation. You don't get heard. And if you're not heard, decisions get made without you. Sometimes decisions get made in your best interest, but no one has ever asked you what's in your best interest. They just presumed to know. Society has a big table, a big table where decisions get made. And that big table, well, it's in the doll, it's in universities, it's in boardrooms and ministerial offices. The big table is crowded around in television studios and radio stations and jostled at in corporate headquarters and golf clubs and houses with gravel driveways. Everybody wants to be at the big table, and it can be a bit of a bun fight to grab a place at it. Some people are lucky, though. A place at the table was reserved for them, held for them by their parents or their school or their address or even their bank balance. Others fight their way to get to the table and manage to squeeze into a place or persuade some of the others to shove up a bit. But there are plenty more who never get anywhere near it. They aren't equipped for the pushing and the shoving, or they're tripped up on the way by people who already have a place and are wary of losing it, or they get shunted by their accent or education or disability, shunted onto the small table where they can't be heard, and they're below the eye line of the people at the big table, people who make decisions in their best interest. I have an outsider's place at that big table. To be honest, I'm a bit surprised to have it, there are a few things about me that I had assumed would disqualify me. Well, I mean, look at me. <laughs> I don't really look like top table material. But 
the criteria for a place at the table can change sometimes. And I was also lucky enough to be equipped with other things that pushed me to the front. The right parents, the right education, the right color, ironically even, as Rory, the right gender. But not everyone gets a name card. And that matters. It matters who's at the table. It matters who gets to make the decisions. It matters whose voices are heard. We can't make the best decisions without all the perspectives. And the people at the small table, out of earshot and below your eye line, they have a perspective. And from where they're sitting, they can see the chewing gum. Um, I'm going to start with you, Stephen. Okay. Tell us a little where you're from and your background. Okay, so uh, I'm from Tala. Spent a few years in UCD doing English and history and then a master's in creative writing. And it was through a love of writing that I really got into acting. Mm. So in the Drama Society in UCD, that's when I met a lot of people who are now working actors and directors and producers and stage managers. And after that, I decided to try and make it my career. Yeah. And now, of course, I'm good friends with your mate, Emmett Kirwan, who you're starring with in Dublin Old School at the moment. And he'd have a similar background to you. Uh, yeah, would have grown up 10 minutes from where I did. He's a little bit older than me, so we would have met only when we were on the acting scene. Yeah. But he was someone that I could look up to because when I went to university, it was the first time I realised, oh, people have this perception of Tala, or I sound different to everybody else, do I? Yeah. And he was someone that I met that was, I was able to say, oh, he, lo- he sounds like me. But, so, but were you always aware that you sounded different? It was only when I went to UCD. Yeah. And I thought it was strange. The reaction to it and the assumption that accent and intelligence are linked. Mm. And now, Susie Q, tell us where you're from. I'm from a little village in between Tipperary Town and Limerick and Mm. moved to Dublin when I was 17 and kind of travelled a fair bit around the world and came back and anchored here. So I've been busy over the last couple of years making my debut record and I've also worked in the field of mental health and the mind over the last Mm. decade and I've been training for the last year to become a meditation teacher. So kind of in that music-y, meditation-y space. You're a big hipster is what you're saying. And <laughs> <laughs> um, Grant, where are you from? Kildare. But I now live between Clare and Dublin. And mm. we were very close to Dublin. We <laughs> snuck off to Dublin when we were teenagers on the bus and uh, all of that. Yeah, but it was country, country then. Yeah, we grew up, you know, swimming in canals and mm. making hay. Yeah. And you teach in the University of Limerick. I do, right? yeah, yeah. I teach in the University of Limerick, yeah. Uh, the School of Architecture, which we started there 13 years ago. Mm. Um, Vukashin, now we have a, this connection with um, Ballyhawness because my father was worked in the meat factory there for many years. Oh, wow. You know that's, the meat factory? That's amazing, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm originally from Belgrade and I came to Ireland in 2006 seeking a refugee status and uh, after mm. living in a few centres, I was uh, placed, if that's the word, in Ballyhawness. In direct, I, in direct provision. In direct provision centre in Ballyhawness, where I lived for almost two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a um, really, really tough experience, especially coming from Belgrade, which is bigger than Dublin, and then subsequently living in, in a small rural town with one or two streets in, in County Mayo. So it was, it was a cultural shock. Um, like, when you arrived first in Ballyhawness, what was your first impression? It was a summer day and the bus dropped me at the bus stop and I had to find a place because it's on the top of the hill. It's the former convent. So I asked people where is the center for asylum seekers and nobody knew. 
And that's one of the things that throughout my stay in Balihon is very few people knew that there are actually asylum seekers living in Balihon. It's most of the people, locals, were thinking they're Syrians or Pakistani who came in 70s or uh, mm. 80s, you know, yeah. and then... So it was very much hidden from the public view, like most, like all of direct provision centers. Mm. And Shiva. Yes. Where's your um, background? I'm from Ennis in County Clare. I grew up there mm-hmm. in a family steeped in music, mostly traditional music. And at 16, my parents decided to move us down to the south of France and I went to school there for a year. Why the south of France? What was the They just wanted us to learn French. So. And you had no French connection in your family? No, no, nothing, no. They just moved us down to, to learn French, really. So I kind that of was... was very fun of them. At the time, it wasn't very fun as a 16-year-old to be dragged, kicking and screaming away from all my cool friends to France, where I didn't really speak French. And I mean, it was a tough year. I was mm. 16. It's an awkward age to go yeah. abroad and live abroad. I mean, in hindsight, it was a great experience. I speak French. I used to go back and forth every summer working there. And then I eventually, at 20, I moved back there myself mm-hmm. and I was kind of back and forth to London and then moved to Canada for a while and now I'm back home. Uh, the, the Canada thing is interesting to me because um, you live in Vancouver mm-hmm. and if you look at those surveys about the best place in the world to live mm. and blah, 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 Vancouver's always right up there. Yeah. Um, it has a reputation for having done things right. Yeah. Was that your experience of it? Oh, absolutely. It's a beautiful city. Mm. They have the balance of being a city and having nature. And I guess it's the Canadian attitude as well over there on the West Coast. They're very laid back. They don't kind of get hung up on a lot of things. They're very outdoorsy, but yet they love partying and having a good time. So there's yeah. a nice mix of the two. Of course, you know, Shiva, you're a member of my community, mm-hmm. the LGBT. And one of the things I always remember about Canada was being in this tiny village, like much smaller than Valley Hall. It's like minuscule village and stopping at the only coffee shop, which was in sort of like a bookshop slash coffee shop. And the shelf behind me was lesbian health. Yeah. And I was like, where else in the world yeah. does a tiny <laughs> village have a whole shelf dedicated to lesbian health? Yeah, my, like my move there was a really good learning experience, you know, for personal growth and development. I'd come from Ireland and my girlfriend at the time and I decided to move there. And I mean, we were three years in a relationship where I think for the first 18 months, we didn't tell anyone living in Ireland. And when I think back on it, I genuinely thought I could be in this relationship forever and keep it a secret, which is bizarre now. But we made the decision to go to Canada. And, you know, it's so funny. You, You brace yourself here in Ireland for that moment where you tell somebody, oh, that's my girlfriend. And they give you this big shock reaction where they're so oh my god and it kind of strokes your ego a little bit because you love talking about yourself then after so long of not discussing it yeah exactly (laughs) so move to Canada and you tell people and they they don't care like in a good way in a very positive way it kind of uh, makes you grow up you think oh this is so normal over here and I mean I didn't know a lot of gay people growing up I certainly didn't know any transgender people or gender fluid people that were of my age and I got to Canada and it was a real learning experience for me to accept that as well and realize this is so normal like why why have I been hiding for so long you know but but, uh, that's interesting to me that you say that about Ireland that I mean you're that's something you're actually get now, is it? No, God, no, 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 no. Because people are, this has become so queer, this country. <laughs> like, you know, I'm cool with this. Yeah. No, <laughs> but it is amazing. Since moving back, I've noticed the change. It's much more inclusive. I Limerick Pride was on and I couldn't go to it, but I was driving through it and I just noticed so many families involved wrapped themselves in pride flags and they were all going to the parade. Like, it's no longer, like, the gay thing to do yeah. or everyone's involved. 
Well, funny, somebody said to me the other day about the Dublin Pride Parade that it's mm. now more family friendly than St. Patrick's Day Parade. Yes. In the sense that, you know, people are sometimes wary now of bringing kids into the city centre at St. Patrick's Day because of all the drinking and stuff. Mm. But if you go to the Pride Parade, it's all you know, buggies and prams and, you know. It's... I saw that in Limerick too, yeah. Well, I don't know if it's true, but I definitely saw something online where a primary school book that had Barry and his boyfriend, and it's that thing where we normalise it and make it yeah. like... It's from day one, you're learning that well, it's... Well, it's funny because people often ask me, you know, how did Ireland change? Mm. And I always say that it happened because Ireland is small and because it's very difficult to live in Ireland and not know, you know, members of the LGBT community. But you could live in Texas easily and not meet a single gay person. And, and once you know people, it's harder to hold prejudices about them or, you know. And Pugin, you've been here living in Ireland for a number of years. And I still think that at the moment, possibly because of direct provision... Not that many Irish people know people who've come here to seek asylum. And so there's still quite a lot of ignorance and prejudice about that. And that community can learn from how it changed for gay people. Absolutely. I entirely agree. And um, what I would like to see is that the mobilisation that we had with the yes vote first for the marriage mm-hmm. referendum and then now with the repeal the eight, mm-hmm. that kind of spirit and hope to end it entirely because uh, it's just another continuation of Mm. coercive confinement in Ireland and we have a history of that through Madeleine Laundries, Borstels, Mother and Baby Homes, Lunatic Asylum. So it's another form of incarceration of one of the most vulnerable members of our society. Mm. Susie, Mm -hmm. you have a song that ties into this yeah, um, I wrote a song. I was living in California about four years ago and I went to Berkeley University to watch a documentary and it was basically about kids as young as seven, eight, nine being told by their families, go make a better life for yourself, traveling up on trains, on top of trains, hiding in trains, trying to make their way through the US-Mexico border. Mm. And it just affected me. It kind of went into my bones and... At the same time, images were coming out all around the the world about Syria. And that image came of, of Alan Kurdi, the young Syrian boy on the Turkish beach. And mm. that's the kind of zeitgeist picture. But yeah, just again, just the power of art. I was just very disturbed by the images that I saw. And I wrote this song called Home. Yes. And you're going to perform it for us now. I will. I'll yes. perform it with a, a lovely guitarist called Colm Corney. Hi, Colm.
That was really beautiful. Thank you so much. <clears throat> I'm going to come to you now, Gronya. Um, so take us back. It's 2015. I presume you were seeing images of Calais on the news or something, and then you just decide to go. Uh, actually, I had been in Istanbul in January, and that was a kind of a moment of change for me. We were there with our students, we'd taken our students and it was snowing and there were a lot of Syrian refugees in the snow there. So this was shocking, clearly. And so I began to understand that Europe was in turmoil. Of course, many other people understood that long before me, but I understood it then. And uh, and then through the summer, we saw the awful images and our government was reacting very slowly, I felt. So I just thought... I'll go and do something, whilst they get themselves organised. But of course, they never quite got themselves organised and our borders got mm. heavier and harder. It's an amazing thing to me that you would just think, I'll go and do something. Because the images we were seeing on the TV of Cali and that, it looked chaotic and mm, huge. It was, it and, is, yeah, still. Um, so when you arrived there... What did you see? I, I think it was a very practical response. I mean, don't forget, I'm an architect, so I'm on sites and I'm serving sites and I'm dealing with people all day long. So I thought, OK, I'll go and see what they need. And also to technically kind of see what the soil was like, what building construction materials were there and all of that sort of stuff. And I figured out that nothing was clear. There was no structure to anything. There was no nobody in charge. There was no sites. And that I just had to figure out how to adapt. So I went, came back built some stuff in Ireland and shipped it back out. And out there, when you get out there, you have to do a hell of a lot of negotiating and figuring out who needs something and what you can best do for not the strongest, but for the most folks actually to be able to access it. Mm. And it was very interesting to watch people come with you to work and help and watch them change and shift within hours uh, their position. And they would be, go probably from some sort of a charitable instinct and that would very quickly move to one of anger and rage and then a, a position of militancy and then a position of advocacy. Because people who are moving in the migration route are fending for themselves. They're trading, they're making businesses, they're building buildings. They're incredibly, incredibly inspiring, of When course. you went there, different communities had sort of built for themselves the things that they felt they needed to, to make a, some sort of community or home there. Yeah, so yeah. people, yes, need food and shelter first. And you hear about that on the Maslow Pyramid of Needs thing. But actually, instantly, they build places of worship and they start making music. So people were building mm. mosques, churches, music places, as there was a theatre, uh, gathering places. And were these individual communities, you know, different nationalities, that were yeah. sort of gathering together and separating themselves from each other? Or was there a shared experience of Calais? You know, it was just the same as anywhere with any group of people. So you've got teenage boys, you've got kids, you have women who are keeping themselves to themselves for safety reasons. So at the end, let me say there were 10,000 people in that field, essentially. And there probably were about, you know, a very 600 women. So that's the proportionality of things. But they were also sticking to men for reasons of mi yeah. keep minding them. And so, you know, when you look at that experience from you know, a little distance now, mm. does it depress you and you think, God, humanity is a mess? Or did it in some way make you think there is something special about humans? It has opened my eyes to the the nature of our world, I think, and to what I could do in that. Mm. But I think it's just the same thing as actually the changes you're talking about in Ireland that have happened. And I've been really interested that there has been such acceptance of people in the LGBT community, that that community is leading on so many issues now in Ireland. And I think we need to be more intertwined in our lives with more people who are different than us. Mm. And 
people in Ireland are less likely to know somebody who's seeking asylum yeah. or a child who's made his way from Afghanistan alone because his mother and father have put him with a, a trafficker to make his way alone mm. to here. And they don't know his story and they don't understand his story and they don't know that he's just a child. But once you do, your life changes. Yeah. You know? And just sort of finish with the Calais thing. Mm. How did Calais end? I mean, catastrophically. Yes. Yeah, absolutely catastrophically and cruelly. It was always a really, really cruel place. It was a place with no policing system. I mean, it was a place with huge amounts of police mm-hmm. and police brutality meted out to the people who were on the move. And it was destroyed in fire, great brutality and great uh, a great lacuna in human rights. Yeah. Mm. So 300 press passes were distributed on the day of the destruction and human rights lawyers were banned from the site. So that will give you a picture of the kind of world we, we have in Europe, the, the world that is in our name at the moment. Well, I mean, that's a really depressing end to... Yeah, yes, I hope. But, but actually, once you are intertwined with people in that situation, Vukshin knows way more than me about this. Anybody who is moving in the migration route, and particularly people who have made it this far, tend to be incredibly powerful, strong, mm. younger people. You know, mm. So there are num- many projects inside of direct provision, particularly those being run by women, yeah. Cooking for Freedom, the Our Table Project, all of these yes, projects. Yes, we know Ellie know. here and we've yeah. had her on the show and everything. Um, yeah. Fukushima, when you were in direct provision, did you have cooking facilities? Were you... No, there were no cooking facilities. That started mm. two years ago in some cases, but only in a certain centres that mm. you are allowed to cook, but not 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 a majority. So that's why cooking for freedom and, and our table kind of started to kind of exist. And uh, the food is chicken nuggets, chips, sausages with very little salad. So when I was there, I uh, I gained loads of weight on, you know, because mm. I didn't have, with 19 euros 10 that I had at the time, I was not able to buy any food, you know. Yeah. So that's one of the major issues of direct provision. There are many, many more, you know. And uh, It's interesting to me that, you know, how you sort of mentioned it as a sort of a continuation of a proud Irish history of incarceration, you know. Um, mother and baby homes and Magdalene laundries and all of that. And, and I 100% agree with you. And I think in years to come, we'll look back and we'll be deeply ashamed with how we treated these people and how, how we locked, locked them up. But it's inspiring to me to yeah. meet some of the, some, some of the uh, people who are living in direct vision. And yet, even in those conditions, they are out you know, trying to change the world. It's remarkable, the, the human spirit. Absolutely, yeah. Even then, in a very difficult kind of circumstances where that that were the ones of Balihani Centre and, and having 320 people from all over the world, really. And how does that work, okay? So we really found a way how to cope within the difficulties through mm. chatting, through drinking tea, playing football uh, in the fields, you know, and then and then celebrating people's birthdays uh, and then also trying to help or to hide people when there was a deportation happening. Yeah. And I think that's really important to, to mention as well how people manage to yeah. survive. It happens everywhere where aid is involved, actually, because aid giving and these, these kinds of structures... They just tend to be military and they tend to be organised and they tend to be about putting people in places and holding them in places, let's say. So there isn't usually the social provision or the recognition that there's a psychological burden if you're sitting in a place with nothing at all to do. No education, nothing to do, no books, no nothing. And no agency, no capacity to do your thing. So once you start to imagine yourself in that situation... It even goes back to what mm. said earlier on, in Ballyhawn, as people didn't even know it was there. Yeah. Yeah. Direct provision to me, seems to be just a phrase yeah. that 
Joe Public might know what it is, yep. but won't know where there's a centre, won't know what goes no, on. No, no. Wouldn't believe hearing that there's yep. no cooking yeah. facilities or there's no, yeah. you know, no attempt to integrate. The, the, the other thing that people, you know, the average guy in the street doesn't understand is how long people are in yes. direct provision. Yes. I mean, it's a system that was designed for six months maximum or something, and people are in there for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, which is a child's it's life. It's appalling, yeah. 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 It's yeah. absolutely appalling. Yeah. Um, Shiva, you decided yourself to, to migrate for your own reasons and about Ireland and all of that stuff, and like so many young Irish people do. So what brought you back? Um, I didn't really intend to come back full-time. I was kind of nearing the end of my two-year visa and decided I'd come back and have maybe a few months at home, do a little tour, get back kind of doing music. In yeah. Canada, I wasn't doing a, a lot of music, which was a great thing for perspective. I kind of had a two-year break to just figure myself out. Mm. And I came back yeah. to release some music and do a tour, and the plan was to stay like four months and go back. And I never went back. I just really settled back into Ireland. It was a different place. Mm-hmm. The music community here is amazing. Just, I feel so loved and I love so many other musicians. It's, you just go around the country, you're touring, you're going to festivals, you're meeting all these people who are doing the same thing as you and they've got their arms open for you. And I just love that. Mm-hmm. I loved being back here. I loved the culture and the lifestyle. Love love the pace of life in the West of Ireland as well. So now you are going to sing a song for us. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a, a little about it. Yeah, so it's a song that I wrote before I went to Canada. Just a few months before I went to Canada, I was living in uh, between Lahinch and Doolin in North Clare. And um, I used to play gigs in Galway every week, playing in pubs. And I'd come home really late at night. And in July, it was kind of just before the sun had come up. And I had to take this little boherine kind of north between Lahinch and Doolin. And the sun had be coming up over here um, on my on my right hand side, and it'd be total darkness looking out towards the cliffs of Moher. So I kind of used to on the on the mornings when it wasn't raining, um, I used to get a beautiful view of this like blaze of red just taking over the darkness. And I wrote the song called July Red Sky, but I'm going to sing it for you now, Oscailga. July Red Sky and the Oscailga. It's Spare Rua on Ul. Let's have it. Mm-hmm. 
That was gorgeous. Thank you. Stephen, one of the things that, well, the main thing that we were thinking about putting this show together is about the people who are heard and the people whose voices aren't heard. And one of your things really is about class, and you're actually touring in a show about that. Um, yeah, well, just to preface that by saying, in relation to your monologue, I know that I'm very much at a big table from the start, mm. you know, straight, white, male, educated to you know, wonderful yep. parents, never wanted for anything, but also never had to think about that, yep. you know. But in terms of class, being an actor, yep. the show Class is about a working class couple who are recently separated. And they have a nine-year-old son, Jaden, who's having learning difficulties. And the teacher is from a middle-class background. And I'm using working class and middle class to set it up because what the play does is he calls the parents in to talk about this. He can't say the word dyslexia. But there's a lot of red tape now. You have to be very careful what you say. So the teacher has to suggest that he might need an educational psychologist. And of course, this is alarm bells to Brian and Donna. So it sets the play up as being a kind of almost a comedy of, of misunderstanding. Very stereotypical, how you, how you dubs in with this middle class guy who thinks he's in dead poet society, you know. And what it does very cleverly is sets the audience up with that and very quickly breaks that away. And you see these very real people all trying to do the best they can, but all having their own insecurities and fears around where they're from. And, and you know, we hear discussions about who's at the table, who makes decisions and all of that, and um, is class the one that we avoid talking about? I think so. It's, it's become more and more, especially in the theatre and in, in the world I'm involved in, there's been a lot of discussion the last few years about working class voices. Mm -hmm. And I know, and I've been very lucky and very grateful to play a multitude of different parts, but a lot of the time when I'm using my own accent, it's drug dealers or it's 
you know, it's somebody dodgy. So I always love when I get a piece of writing where it's my own accent, let's say, but it's just a, a regular person. And I've mm. done that as well. When I started writing, I thought to write in my own voice means that all the characters' intelligence points have to be dropped somehow. You know, mm. a reality that I wasn't part of, that I didn't grow up in at all, that never saw. So it's amazing how you can actually take on preconceptions or notions about who you are and how you sound and where you're from, yeah. even though you've never experienced yeah. it. Well, well, it's funny because, you know, um, everybody has their own insecurities about where they're from or whatever. And there was definitely a time in my life when I would play down the fact that my family was middle class because it was seen as uncool. You know, and then eventually you, you, you are who you are. You are who you are, exactly, yeah. yeah. Because I always say that, I mean, I can yeah. take the you-know-what out of myself because I'm hardly walking around like Luke Kelly or Ronnie Drew, you know? I'm not <laughs> a, like, but I, I feel like I, I come from working-class morals or values. Mm. But, you know, to really call myself working-class compared to the struggles, it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. Well, what are working-class morals? Pretty the same morals. I'm just, I don't even like using working-class, middle-class. It's yeah. just a thing. But it's, you know, get your head down, knuckle down, yeah. be humble where you can, work hard. Mm. But there's negative stuff as well. It's yeah. like, don't get too above your station. Don't be too arrogant. As if ambition is a dirty word, mm. you know? It, like, maybe in the past, certainly, uh, working-class men felt that they couldn't really discuss their own issues and all of that because it wasn't part of the culture in a way, in a sense. And, and that's something that you're, you are quite interested in, mental health issues and that. Do you think that's changing? Can you sit in the pub in, in Tala and, and, and discuss depression? You know what? It only takes one person in a group discussion to start it. It's great that an audience on The Late Late can clap Blind Boy Boat Club when he brings up these issues. But isn't it also shocking that a guy wearing a plastic bag <laughs> on his head has to point out that it's okay to talk about these things. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But yeah, I think it's, it's that thing. It's a, one person shows a bit of courage and, and opens up about it. It's amazing how many people have the same story. I mean, I, this year I went on the Camino and I walked for a month across Spain and I met people from all over the world and everyone was kind of open to having those discussions very early. But as soon as we did, day one, day two, the floodgates were open for people you suddenly don't feel vulnerable or, or weak. And I would have had a huge problem yeah. when I was much younger, uh, appearing vulnerable or seeming weak. Mm. You know, that facade of, you're from a tough area, are you? you I kind of tucked it on a little bit, you know? Mm. And you, you, you're, you do the darkness into light and, and the Camino, it turns out, now you love your walking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I did it before, yeah. And, yeah. and now, Susie, because you are also have a, a big interest in mental health issues and you did the Lust for Life thing with Brezzy. Um. Um, well, I don't work with the Lust for Life now, but I, yeah, I co-founded a Lust for Life with Brezzy a couple of years ago. And basically where I found myself is in a space where I'm really honing into the meditation space. And the reason for that is it's actually very connected into a room at the table. For me, meditation is a gateway to power. And what I mean by that is there are gatekeepers, there are power keepers. Power wants to keep power. Mm. But in order for you to be an activist, to be a campaigner, to change things, you have to have a sense of personal agency. And I found in my own life, the main way that I found that is through meditation. Mm. I'm, now, I'm not the meditative type, but... Come hang out with me. I'll yeah. <laughs> well, but, but it turns out that I think everybody in your life finds a, a way or something. And mm. for me, it's doing my makeup. Yeah. You know, this is a special effects make job. It takes two hours. And, you know, I've done it thousands of times. Mm. And when I go to sit down, my thought is usually, oh, God. You know, because I, I'm going to do this thing again. But then the time just slips by and two hours later, I'm finishing. And 
I've thought of a million things and I've thought of nothing in that time. Amazing. Yeah, and, absolutely. That is meditation for sure. And people find it in, in so many different ways. Now, Stephen, uh, you are a writer as well as an actor and all that. And your play, From Eden, won an award recently. Uh, yeah, well, it was started off as a stage play and it, it received one of the Stuart Parker Awards, which was great for it. And then recently at the New York Radio Awards, we got um, Silver for Best Drama Special and Shauna Kerslake won Gold for Best Performance by an Actress. And you, you, you're, you're describing her as just some like random actress, but she's your girlfriend, right? Well, I'm not officially allowed to say anything. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, From Eden is a play that uh, has two characters and they are strangers to each other and they meet one night at a New Year's Eve party. And uh, they're both in a pretty dark place. They're hiding away for their own reasons at this party. And um, during the conversation between Alan and Eva, slowly starts to get established what was going on and they take an interest in each, in each other and they're, they're someone to confide in. You see, you see. Um, it's, I mean, it's remarkable and yeah. So uh, I want to come back to you now. So you are, have this sort of documentary project where you're documenting your journey as an asylum seeker or... The project is called Asylum Archive and it started when I was an asylum seeker in, in Direct Provision Centre in Balihonis. So as a part of the coping mechanism, I start to take photographs of my room, of the surrounding, of the centre. And then when I got my papers, I have documented all of the Direct Provision Centre's in the country from the inception of direct provision in November 1989. So there were uh, almost 160 direct provision centers. So here we have a project that is available online and then at present it has almost 6,000 photographs, which is substantial documentation of one uh, recent uh, period in the Irish history. And, and what's the website so people can go and check that out? Asylumarchive.com. So you've been here how many years now, did you say? Uh, almost 13, 12 and a half. Okay, yeah. um, half's important. Um, <laughs> and, and what's your life like now? Well, I'm married to an Irish woman. Uh, we have a child together. She's nine. I'm struggling with a PhD at the moment. So I have done two years of a PhD in, in Dublin Institute of Technology. So comparing to what I have went through, it's Pretty, pretty okay, mm. I have to say. And at this stage, do you feel Irish? I do feel Irish. I have an Irish passport and I could have gone back to Belgrade many, many times, but I never went and I don't think I'll ever go back. You never went back even to visit? No. That's remarkable. Yeah. And you have family there? Uh, I have only my dad left. My mom passed away when I was in direct provision and I'm the only child, so I have uh, only my dad. And he is... Um, He's able to come to visit. Mm. So um, it may be safe to go back, but I'm completely disconnected from that part of the world. So this is the home now. And I kind of often say that when people announce me as a Serbian artist from Ireland, I'll say, no, I'm an Irish artist now. So yeah. To an outsider, I think that there's a, there's a sadness about that, yeah. that you're so disconnected from where you started out and... And is yeah. it a sadness to you? Or uh, you? Well, it was a sadness at some point, especially when I was living in direct provision. But because when the war started in 1990 till 2000, there were like the best years of my life were spent on the street, basically protesting, demonstrating, being in prison, etc. So uh, I don't have very nice memories. I have a very nice memories of Yugoslavia when I was up to 16, when I was able to travel to 
Croatia and Slovenia and Bosnia and Herzegovina. It was all wonderful. And then completely collapsed. Yeah, it's a fascinating place. Uh, it is. And, uh, have you ever been I to? have, yes. Yeah. I've done my show in Bosnia-Herzegovina and Sarajevo. And oh, it's actually a remarkable place to go to yeah. for someone like me because it's incredibly difficult to be LGBTQ in that part of the world. And take, for example, uh, in, in Sarajevo, I do, do my show there. It's in this little theater. But in the theater, they are afraid to put posters up outside with my picture on them. So they put up posters, but they've taken the pictures out, so it's just text. There's no gay bar or anything like that in Sarajevo, but there is what I would recognize from when I first came out in Dublin you know, in the 80s. They have like kind of a misfits bar. So there'll be a few punks, a few rockabillies, and a few you know, lesbians. And that very much reminds me of the kind of bars that I would hang out in Dublin in the 80s. And then I, I, I do this show, and it's you know, my usual silliness, and... Um, and these people come to the show, and the, it's an act of bravery for them to come. Yeah, you know, the theater had to be in contact with the local police, who begrudgingly sent some police over to sort of be nearby. They had to hire private security just to make sure, and this kind of stuff. And, and, and that misfit bar had been attacked three times in the previous month by skinheads. So it is dark and dangerous. But then I'll meet this you know, 17-year-old lesbian, and to her... I think she thinks things will never change, that things can't change, this seems like they're just the way it is, and I think she finds it difficult and depressing. And, and then I come along and I can say, when I was your age, Ireland was just like that. And in the space of my you know, lifetime, it has changed. You know, dramatic change is possible. It's just a really nice thing to be able to tell someone. Like, I'm sure when you're 17, 30 years seems like forever. And she thinks I'm ancient or whatever. But <laughs> I feel like Ireland can give people like that a little hope. Because we illustrate that change does happen and can happen. Gronja, I want to come back where we yeah. sort of finish the story here. Because the Calais experience and all that greatly influenced your work and what you yeah. focus on and do in your I did think it was important to begin to bear witness and to turn mm. the mirror back onto ourselves and also to look at the things we're responsible for. So yeah. one of the things I'm responsible for is teaching and talking about spatial practices and teaching about space. Mm. So we made maps of Cali and they've yeah. been hung in a number of different places and from IMA to important places in London. So I'm trying to lodge them. I'm trying to bear witness, I suppose. That's why I think the Asylum Archive project is incredibly important. Mm. So I'm very conscious of the fact that we have seen photographs of children washing up on our shores and that has failed to adequately cause us to respond. Mm. So I'm interested in decolonizing the curriculum, trying to see if we can not have the same systems of education that only mean we can have particular kinds of students coming from particular countries into our universities and particular classes of people coming from into our universities. So my work is quite diffuse in this area, but it is all in the area of trying to check ourselves and recognize that there are structures and there are borders and there are systems that are working against a huge proportion of the world. And we are complicit in that. You know, do you have an optimistic outlook about these yeah, things? Yeah, I do, I do, I do, because no, I do, absolutely. You know, we've been teaching to an old order up until this point. I learned about that old order. I All the history books of art and architecture are about that old order. And now I see that many people in England, particularly in the UK, because it's a very much more multicultural society with its huge problems and huge challenges where people are really addressing this. But there's people, there's knots of people everywhere trying to do it. 
mm. trying to work and gnaw away at borders. So, I, I, yeah, it's brilliant. I think it's really, really positive, actually. Uh, Shiva, mm-hmm. you have another song. Yes, I do. Why did we fall in love? Yes, it's a straight up love song. I kind of grew up listening to a lot of jazz. My dad's a big jazz fan. And I was kind of listening to a lot of Cole Porter and Irving Berlin, the people who wrote the songs, the, the great American songbook. Mm. I was really influenced by them in my kind of early 20s. But the idea for this song kind of hit me probably in my early 20s, but it never finished. I could never finish it. I could never write it. I had the chord sequence and kind of like I knew what it should have been, but everything I tried never worked until I fell in love for the first time. So then that's what I wrote the song. It's called Why Do We Fall in Love? And and does the, your first love know that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It got you laid, did it? <laughs> <laughs> In the olden days Oh, had you come my way I would have seen so lonely But now that you are here I must never fear For my heart is beating again Put me on cloud nine 
Gorgeous. That would definitely have gotten me into bed. That is it from this episode of Pantasocracy. I would like to thank all of my guests, Gronja Hassett, Vukashin Nedeljkovic, Susie Q, Stephen Jones, and Shiva Brock. And you can catch up on all things Pantasocracy on pantasocracy.ie. And all previous episodes, including this one soon, will be available as podcasts from all of the regular platforms. Thank you for listening, and thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you.